Hi and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of young adults living in Montreal who meet together to talk about what it means to be a Christian. The podcast today is a sermon from our series on the basic beliefs of Christianity. Hope you enjoy. I um I was speaking to a, a like itinerant pastor, someone who kind of he travels from church to church and helps kind of fill the gap if they have a gap in the preaching. So he doesn't have a permanent um, church that he preaches at. He just sort of floats around. He told me a story that I'll never forget. He said he went to this one particular church that was kind of out, out far, uh, and it was a very small little building. He said, even as I went in, though, like the congregation was tiny. It was like less than 10 people in the congregation. Uh, and... They were all kind of like distant from each other. It didn't seem to be a very tight community. Uh, and so he's never met this church before. He was just invited to come. Um, and he met the person who invited him to come. Uh, and he got a sense from this person that this guy was like in charge. Like he was, like he wasn't the pastor of the church. He was just sort of a, an elder of the church, which is not a paid position or anything. Uh, but he was kind of the one who, who was running everything. And he got a kind of awkward sense about this guy from the get-go. Um, but you know, you kind of, you know, you, you kind of treading lightly when you're in a new situation. So he goes up to preach and as he's preaching and he's kind of getting into it, sort of, he says around the 25 minute mark, the guy that invited him took out his keys and started doing this. And he looked at him and he's like, gave him like the wrap it up signal. Like your time is done. Like wrap it up. And he said, like, I've never had anyone, like, kind of just, like, red light me and, like, you know, like, usher me off the stage before. But that's exactly what happened. I just had to kind of wrap my message up exactly where it was. And he's like, there's, like, eight people in the room. Like, it's not subtle that he's, like, shaking his keys at me to get me to shut up and come down. And he says, so I just kind of wrapped it up and kind of went and sat down. And that was it. You know, like, my, my preaching was done. And I was not invited back to the church. <laughs> and I, I just think that story is so crazy for just the awkwardness of it all. I can't imagine being in that position where you just feel so, like, I guess unwelcome in a way. Like, just that, that, that tension in the air would be so palpable. And I was reminded of that story when I was reading the, the passage that we're looking at today. We're looking at a story that I don't think, I've certainly never heard a sermon on before, and I, I hope well, I don't hope, but I'm assuming you're in the same boat as me. We're looking at 3 John. Whenever you say that, already we're in murky water because who opens 3 John? Uh, we should more. It's a great little book. But 3 John is where we're at. And 3 John verse 9 and 10 is what we're looking at. And we're going to look at a character who I think is exactly the kind of guy who would do just what that elder did at the church as well. And definitely even worse than that. So I'll be reading from the NLT, um, which is not normal for me, but I like the way that NLT kind of uh, expresses the sentiment of this. I think it did a better job than NIV uh, and the ESL did. No, no, not ESV, sorry, not ESL. So um, 3 John, right towards the end of the Bible, uh, kind of the, the, second to, the third to last book, um, and we're looking at verse 9 and 10. And here's what it says. I sent a brief letter to the church about this, uh, 
but, uh, sorry, I practiced his name so many times today. Uh, what was it again, Hope? <laughs> Diotrophies. Thank you. Man, I don't know what's wrong with me. Diotrophies. Okay, we're going to start again. I sent a brief letter to the church about this, but Diotrophies, who loves to be the leader, does not acknowledge our authority. When I come, I will report some of the things he is doing and the wicked things he is saying about us. He, is not only he not only refuses to welcome the traveling teachers, he also tells others not to help them. And when they do help, he puts them out of the church. Uh, I'll read a lot, the first part of, of verse 11 too. Dear friend, do not let this bad, this bad example influence you. So we meet this guy, Diotrephes, who just seems to be this really kind of, like even if he's, it's only two verses that are dedicated to him in the whole Bible, I think we can kind of get a sense of the kind of guy he is. And so I want to ask you the question, given what we know about him, kind of the antics that he's up to, what are some of the words you would use to describe him? Just shout them out. Arrogant. Arrogant. Good one. Yeah. Anything else? Pious. Mm. Anything else? I wrote down arrogant, rude, a dictator kind of thing. But what are some of the what are some of the words you think he would use to describe himself? I think what Warren said is a good one. Pious, probably. Anything else? How do you think he would see himself? Elite. Yeah. Anything else? Powerful. Powerful. Good one. Yeah. I wrote down uh, protector of the truth, righteous, uh, integrity, things like that. I think a, a man like that would basically be have, have no real idea of how he is perceived by others. Because it's all kind of wrapped up in this, this whole package that we see developing in this guy. We see that you know, he's kind of bad news from beginning to end. You know, he's, he, you know, he's, he's slandering the apostles. He's slandering those who are kind of in authority over him to, in order to sort of undermine their authority. He's saying, as it says, wicked things about us. And slander or loose control of the tongue or just you know using your words as weapons is one of the dangerous things the Bible tells us about sort of that sinful nature that we all carry that we have this this weapon in our mouth and you know if we don't have control over it it's a sign we are not heading in the right direction at all he also has this very uh, unhospitable nature to him he's he's refuses to welcome the traveling teachers not only that but he tells other people in the church don't welcome them and if they, they kind of go against his, his wishes and welcome them anyway, then he throws them out of the church. I mean, this is crazy. This guy is not only unhospitable, he's bitter, he's angry, he's controlling, he's vengeful. Uh, and it says at the very beginning as we meet him, he loves to be first. And that little phrase is like, it's so kind of poignant in a thing. This guy loves to be first. And we've all met people like that who just love to be first. They love to be in front, they love to be in charge, and the power has kind of gone to their head. Because now that they're so proud, they become unteachable. And this is the real danger that he's in. Because he's become so proud, because he's now unteachable as a result, he's really blind to the danger that he's in. He cannot see himself. 
but he looks in the mirror, what he sees is a totally inaccurate view, a complete caricature, uh, and he doesn't see the truth. And if he's doing this to John, who's, I mean, he's John, like he, was, he walked with Jesus, and he's treating John to this, with this degree of hostility, can you imagine what he's doing to people who are kind of underneath him? He must be ruthless. He must be a tyrant. He must be an awful person to be around, and he's in a very, very dangerous place himself. And what we can see here is a breakdown of the three main components, uh, well, the three main relationships that we all have, uh, and we see the, the breakdown that's very typical of the way that sin breaks these relationships apart. Firstly, we see that he's deeply at odds with others in the church, obviously John, but then also others, these, these t teachers who are coming through, he's deeply at odds with them as well. And so because of his manipulative nature, because of his, his kind of control-freak, dictator type of personality, he's fractured you know, really important relationships and, and is really going in a terrible direction. So we see his relationship with other people is broken. We also see that he's unteachable. He won't listen to the authority of John and the others. He won't listen, and because he's not listening, then he won't even listen to God as a result. We, the way we know that he's not listening to God is because as John will go on, he'll say, look, if someone bears good fruit in their life, then you know that they are in line with the gospel. But if they don't, then you know that no matter what they're saying, they're not in line with the gospel. And this guy, whatever he's claiming, the fruit of his life is not lining up with it. And so he is not listening to God he is not obeying God. He is not in, in God's favor at all. And so he's in deep, deep trouble. And he doesn't see it. He's alienated from God entirely. So that relationship is busted as well. And the last thing is that he's blind to his own self-image. He's, he's out of sync with himself. His estimation and view of himself is totally wrong. And so that relationship is broken as well. And the reason that we can, well, another way we could describe this type of blindness to your own self is to be enslaved to sin. And so John's advice in you know, looking and, and measuring up the man is do not follow his example. This is not a man that you want to follow. And one of the biggest issues this guy is going to face going forward, I don't know, obviously we, none of us know what happens to him next after this letter is read publicly as it would have been. Let's hope that he repents. But one of the biggest obstacles he'll have to any kind of genuine repentance is that, that he's just unteachable. He doesn't want to listen. He doesn't want to learn. And that's something we should all take note of. One of the most important qualities a person can have is to remain teachable, to remain open remain humble enough to listen. The fact of the matter is all of us have problems. All of us have rough edges and things that are, you know, are a product of sin in our life. The difference between those who will get over them and those who won't is those who are teachable and those who aren't. If you're teachable, no matter what your rough edges are, you will be able to acknowledge the issues you have and change as a result. This is not new. <laughs> this is very obvious. What I love about the 12-step the program and, and all those kind of AA programs is the very first thing you need to do is acknowledge that you have a problem. The kind of implicit idea behind that is until you're ready to acknowledge that you have a problem and listen, you have no power to change it whatsoever. You're powerless in that position if you won't acknowledge the issues you have. 
But in, when you actually begin to acknowledge them, when you take that step to begin to listen, that is when you gain power. You actually have the power available to you to begin to change at that point once you begin to acknowledge your weaknesses and flaws. Now this is the second week we're looking at sin. We looked at it last week, we're looking at it again now, and perhaps some people are thinking, do we have to do this again? <laughs> Didn't you make me feel bad enough last week? Like, we get it, we're sinful, let's move on. Well, the problem with just moving on is that we just really need to pause and consider the depth of our issues. Last week, what we looked at is the universality of sin, that we are all lost, that we all have a problem that we're facing. This week, what we're looking at is what I'll call the intractability of sin. Not only are we all in the same boat, but we all lack capacity to do much about it. We're all kind of stuck without some intervention, without some help. We're all pretty screwed, like we don't have a hope moving forward. We're stuck. In Romans 7, Paul describes this issue of how stuck we are. He says, you know, the more I try and do good, the more I, I do the things I don't want to do. You know, I want to do good, but every time I take a move, the bad I don't want to do is right there with me. And he describes this, this thing about life that as I'm describing it now, you're probably thinking like, yep, I know exactly what he means. The more I try and do good, the more I find myself incapable of doing it. And the more instead I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do. And so we're not, he's not alone. And if you hear me say it and think, well, I don't have that problem. Maybe you're not trying hard enough. Maybe your moral ambitions are a little bit too low. Because what you will find that if you aspire to be a morally better person, you will find just how difficult that is. You will find how much you get in your own way. Just try to do the basics. Try to live by the Ten Commandments for a week. See how you do. It's, hard. it's not even hard. It's impossible. You can't do it. It's not, it's not within the wheelhouse for us. And so what this, the chapter that we should have looked at this week, uh, John, in the book of uh, John Stott, uh, talks about is the three main ways that sin affects the relationships we have. And so the first thing he looked at was alienation from God. If we were created by God, if God exists and he is our creator, then the Bible will go on to explain that he created us to have a relationship with us that we were made to know our Creator and to fellowship with our Creator. But we don't. We can't. We have this separation that we feel now. There is a separation between us and God, this sort of impenetrable curtain that has been set up between us and Him, that we are now cut off from Him. And the, the reason for that is sin. The reason for that is that we're not able to come into His presence because of the presence of sin in our life. God is by very definition, the most holy, most perfect being that could exist. And in the presence of somebody like that, we don't have a hope of survival. We couldn't approach him. We couldn't hope to have a relationship with him. It just wouldn't work. We're on such unequal footing in every possible way. And so to be in his presence would be absolutely unbearable. And we feel this separation. I'm sure you've experienced this as you pray and you feel sometimes just Nothing. There's just nothing there. Even when you cry out for him, you just don't feel him there with you from at times. And John Stott says, you know, it's not just a feeling, it's a fact. That separation that you feel, it's more than just a feeling, it's a fact. 
There is a separation that we cannot overcome ourselves. There's a reason for it. The reason for it that is that if we were to actually enter into his presence, none of us would be able to bear it. None of us can, can possibly stand in his presence. And we see that happening all the way throughout uh, the Bible, Old Testament and New. We see people who kind of get a glimpse of God, who kind of come into his presence in one way or another, and they are undone in the process. We see Moses you know, God approaching God and realizing what's going on in the burning bush, and he becomes, he just loses it in that moment. Same thing with Job, same thing with Isaiah, same thing with Ezekiel, same thing with Saul in the New Testament. They come into the presence of God and they are just totally undone by it as well. This is unbearable sense of unworthiness that they all will speak of when they're in that presence, that they just know they cannot stand. And I don't know if you've experienced being in the presence of greatness, someone that you recognize as just amazing, be it for physical beauty or academic accomplishment or, or whatever it is that you aspire to be when you meet your hero, so to speak. And don't you just have that, that huge sense of self-consciousness in that moment where you just realize your unworthiness to stand there? Now take that idea and then times it by a million because this is what we're dealing with here. Uh, I'll quote John Stott in that chapter now. He says, As it is, we are only dimly aware of how pure and brilliant the glory of Almighty God must be. However, we know enough to realize that we could never approach such a God while still in our sins. A great chasm yawns between God and His holiness and us in our sin. So we understand, like, we kind of can intuit that if we were ever to stand in the presence of God, we'd be undone by it. Some of us don't really realize that. I've met people before who, who, um, who claim that, you know, oh man, if, if God exists and I stand face to face with him, I would say, how dare you, God, and blah, 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 you know, this and that. And I listen to them, but I think to myself, like, no, you wouldn't. Like, if you were actually to face God, I don't think you would have the frame of mind at all to come and bring your arguments to him. You would just be undone in it as well. And that's the other thing about God is that we, as much as we would we crave him, you know, we were made to know him, and we do kind of have a sense that without him something is missing in our life, we also fear him. We kind of hate him even because he exposes us as frauds. Because if he's real, if he exists, we are not king of our life. We are not in charge. We are the usurpers to the throne. We have no right to di dictate our own lives. And so we don't want to give that up. We don't want to give up autonomy. We don't want to be exposed as frauds. And so we rail against the idea of God. And as much as he pushes us away and holds us at a distance, we, we ourselves push him away too and say, no, I don't want this. But the amazing thing is about the human condition is that, you know, I love, there was a quote I, I heard maybe a couple of years ago, and I tried to find it again uh, today, but I couldn't find it. But, you know, the quote kind of explained that the heart, the human heart has this capacity to both want and not want the same thing in the same moment. You know, we can equally desire and fear this, the same thing in the same moment. And it says, you know, we are more equipped for tragedy than we are for any kind of happily ever after, which makes sense, you know. And we have that sense about God. 
without him, we have this, this restlessness, this hunger that remains within us, this, what, what Timothy Keller describes as a burning vacuum within us. And we see it all around us. You, despite the plethora of religions that there are in this world, what we can recognize among all of them is that every single human being has the same question in their heart. All of us are born with that sense of, is this all there really is? What am I here for? What does all of this mean? We all have these burning questions within us that we seek answers for and go to great lengths to try and find answers for as well. And so we're all wrestling with the same questions in order to fill and make sense of this vacuum we have within us. And not only that, but we also see in the age that we live in, which is the age of plenty, instead of being finally happy, we have an epidemic of addictions, an epidemic of mental health problems. As people realize that, oh, these things I thought I wanted all along have not filled me one bit, and now I'm still the same person I was, still stuck. And so we have this vacuum within us that just won't cease to gnaw at us. And that's because of the alienation we, that we experience from God, this, this chasm that yawns before us. The, la- the second thing that we experience because of sin is this bondage to self. The Bible speaks about sin as a slavery. It's not just, sin isn't just the things that we do. It's, the, it's a condition of our heart. It's something that we, we act out of. You, know, you don't just do bad things willy-nilly. You do them because of this deep-seated inner sickness that we carry. Our actions come out of the sickness of our heart, and then they fall back upon us, reinforcing that sickness and deepening it as well. You know, like the Bible explains, and then Paul does a marvelous job of, of exposing that you know, because of sin, our emotions, what we love, what we hate, what we run for, what we recoil from, it's all screwed up, it's all mixed up, and we... We, you know, we love the things that we should hate, and we hate the things that we should love, and, and we love what we hate at the same moment as well. Our mind is able to justify and reason and rationalize all kinds of faulty ideas and, and give us a completely twisted perspective on things in order to justify our behavior. And our will, we can, you know, we can quiet down and diminish the, our will just by exposing it to sin enough. You know, we, can, we can twist our will, our desire, our, our drive towards something that is sinful. And the more that we chase after broken things, the more it diminishes our will to chase after anything good. There's this brokenness within us that continues to, to, to come out in all of these different ways. You know who the biggest liar in the room is? It's you. It'll always be you, no matter what room you're in, because you lie to yourself more than anybody else has ever lied to you before. The reasons you use to justify your behavior, the things that you tell yourself will be will make you happy, the excuses you use, they're all lies that we tell ourselves over and over and over again. A few months ago, you know, I had this really stark awakening once again to the, just how true this is of me as well. I was listening to someone talk about sort of the intractability of sin, and and he he talks about how all of us in our hearts have this sort of this if only desire that we carry within us this sort of like if only i had that my life would be complete my life would be better and we all have it and we all you know give a different definition maybe in this moment think what is your if only if only i had that 
my life would be better. And as he was, as he was teaching, I paused and I thought, what is my if only? And my knee-jerk reaction that came to me in a minute was uh, more free time. If only I had more free time, then I'd be happier, then I'd have a better life. And as that came to me, I realized how ridiculous that thought is because I know that free time is the very worst thing you can give to me. If you don't, if I don't have a scheduled life, I'll just, I just do whatever I want. I just, I waste time. I scroll through my phone achieving absolutely nothing. That's what I choose to do with my time. Nothing. I don't need more of that. More of that would be the very worst thing that you can give to me. And yet, I am telling you, it, was the, it felt so right in that moment. Yep, that's what will make me happier. No, it won't. It wouldn't make me any happier. I have plenty of free time as it is, and I waste every moment of it, and it's pointless, and it's destructive, and I know that, but I don't know it enough, you know? It still has its claws within me. Our problem is not education. Our problem is not that we don't know the right thing to do. Our problem is even if we know the right thing to do, we can't find ourselves capable of doing it. We're stuck. Our problem is not with the rules. Our problem is with us. We have this issue. And uh, the poem that uh, John Stott quotes in his book by uh, Studdard Kennedy, it says this, It is not finished, Lord. There is not one thing done. There is no battle in my life that I have really won. And now I come to tell thee how I fought to fail my human, all-too-human tale of weakness and futility. That's why in the end, God didn't just send us another teacher, just send us a really good teacher, Jesus, to help us really figure things out. If that's all Jesus was, was a teacher, then woe be to us, because we are really, really in trouble. If all he was was our example, well, forget it, we're done. We're really, really done. Because we don't need just another teacher. We need something else. It wouldn't be enough to just send a teacher into this world. Even the best teacher wouldn't be enough. We need a power that isn't natural. We need something that this world, that our hearts cannot manufacture for itself. Something not of human origin. So alienation from God is something we cannot overcome. The sickness within ourselves is not something that we can adequately get over. The last thing is conflict with others. You know, I have kids who are getting old enough now to really begin to show me their own kind of messed up hearts. And one of the things you can see in it is that kind of me first attitude. Whenever I'm doing something with both of my girls, uh, my oldest one will always be like, me first, me first, me first. Like, if you wait a second, it'll be your turn. Like, why do you have to be first? Why does it have to be about you? And as we get older, we don't lose it. We just get better at hiding it. We just get better at like sort of being more subtle about it, but we don't lose it. Our self-centered perspective is something we cannot really get over, and yet it causes so much issues in the world today. The clashes between people that we experience from a personal level all the way up to a global level is because we just can't get over ourselves. We are always going to be the center of our own perspective. William Temple, I'm quoting the John Stott book again here, where he quotes William Temple and says, I am the center of the world I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Education may make my self-centeredness less disastrous by widening my horizon of interest. 
So far as it is like climbing a tower, which widens the horizon from my physical vision, while leaving me still at the center and the standard of reference. We are always going to be at the center. And because of that, we are going to struggle to see the perspective of others. We are going to struggle to celebrate their accomplishments without envy, to understand their struggles without, without some sense of uh, judgment. We're going to struggle to feel, not feel superior or inferior to people. We're going to struggle to have an accurate, sober-minded uh, vision of ourselves, filled instead with you know, inappropriate self-pity or self-esteem or self-love or something else. The fact of the matter is, just by our very nature, we are just wired to be more charitable to ourselves whilst more critical to others about others. This issue is something that is the cause of all the social problems that we have. All of the, the fighting that happens is because we just can't seem to get over ourselves. We can't seem to see outside of our own perspective well enough to be able to truly understand the other, truly relate to them as equals. It's so hard for us. It's so infrequent that we're able to do it. You know, and we get, we get commands in Scripture like, you know, love your enemies like you love your, like, you know, love your enemies and pray for them. You know, love others, love your neighbor as you love yourself. How are we ever going to be able to do that? How are we ever, ever going to be able to do something like that? Have the same amount of interest I have for my own well-being, for your well-being? Give me a break. That's why Bertrand Russell, when he says, there's nothing morally wrong with the commandment to love your enemies, except that it's impossible to do. He looks at it and he says, it's nice, but it's just pretty words. It's just a nice sentiment. Nothing to live your life on. You know, the reason for that is that what we need is a point of reference outside of ourselves. We need to be able to step outside of ourselves and, and, and get a heart that isn't so trapped with ourselves. But how on earth are we going to get a point of reference outside of me? All I have is me. You know, we're stuck. We're stuck again. In all three instances, we're in a position that we cannot get out of by ourselves. And this should actually be clues to us. That our answer is not found in just more rules. Our answer is not found in just following your heart because your heart is broken. Our answer is not found in, I don't know, sentimentality and then pretty words. Our answer is found in the fact that we need rescue. We're helpless. We're absolutely helpless. I know uh, some of you remember E. Some of you remember him. E was a member of CU20 a few years ago, um, and there was a, he had only kind of just started coming to CU20 for a little while, uh, and we ended up going on a, like a day out at this campsite where we were helping to like clear up their land and, and help them sort of just like cut down some trees that were dead and you know, get them ready for it to be firewood. And at the end of the day, we ended up in the pool, big, nice, beautiful pool on site. Uh, and we're all kind of chilling in the pool. There's quite a lot of us. And I look over, and in the deepest part of the pool, I see Iyi, and all I can describe him is if, have you ever seen a goldfish eating food where its, it's, it's head is way up like this, and it's like, um, 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 at the surface, and it'll go down and up again and down and up again. And I saw Iyi doing exactly that. He's in the deepest part of the pool, and every now and again, his, his head will go, up, 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 and you go back down again. I'm like, 
is he in trouble? Like, is he drowning? And I didn't know him that well. So I didn't want to like go over and like grab him. But I was like, if, if he's in trouble, I need to grab him. And so I was like, oh, I just got to do this. And I swam over to him and like, and the best thing I could think to do in that moment was I went underneath him and I grabbed him sort of here on the ribcage and I just sort of lifted him up. And so his head was out the water and by the time his head was out the water, my feet were on the ground and I can hold my breath for ages. And so I just sort of walked him towards the edge <laughs> and let him like hang on to something. And then I came up and I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, man, I was dying. Like, <laughs> he's like, thank you for helping me. And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad that wasn't awkward. <laughs> but he was like, in, he was in need of rescue. Like, he needed help. He couldn't, like, and, you know, he was a terrible swimmer. And I didn't know that. No one knew that. And uh, what, what needed to happen, essentially, in that context, was for him to be lifted up, I needed to go down. As he becomes more buoyant, I become less buoyant as a result. And what we find in Jesus, and, and look, this is the last one we're going to do on sin. Next week, actually the week after that, next week's a worship night. Please get excited for that. But the week after that, the sermon that's coming is going to look at what Jesus do does. But in a nutshell, Jesus went down so we could go up. Jesus rescued us by, by bearing the burden pushing us up into security, pushing us up into life and breath once again. Have you ever heard people say, someone say something like, something to the effect of people never change? I've heard that. I hate it when people say that. To say something like people never change, I think is as much a denial of the gospel as to say Jesus was just a myth. It's a an, it's an completely wrong-minded, absolutely insidious thing to think and to say people never change. The point of the gospel is that all of these issues that we've looked at today, helpless as we are to solve them ourselves, are met and challenged and transformed in Jesus, in what he has done. You know, we, we spoke earlier about you know, the idea of loving your enemies and how incapable we would be, we would, we wouldn't be able to do that. Yet, we see Jesus speak of loving our enemies and he says it in, the, in, in that context, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's a really interesting phrase that Jesus uses and he uses the word teleos to, to speak of perfection there. And that phrase is, very hard to translate, and they do their best. And perfect is not a bad way to translate it, but there's breadth in there to think about it in different ways. And the way teleos can be applied is the idea of whole. Be whole, be complete, as your Heavenly Father is complete. And I think what he's referring to there is the sense of maybe wholeheartedness. If you are being called to love your enemies, you have to have a whole heart and essentially need nothing from them in return. You need to be able to be in a position where you can give without expecting anything back, without desiring anything back, without needing anything back. You need to be whole. 
You need to have a whole heart to do that. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is offering us. He's saying, in me, you will find yourself complete. And because of that, you will change. Things that you didn't think you were able to do, things that you could recognize as being impossible for yourself, you will be able to change and be able to do those things because of the change, the completeness that I'm going to bring to you. Change does come. Jesus changes people. Now, change might be slow. The change might be in kind of fits and starts and jolts and two steps forward and one step back, but change does happen. That is exactly what Jesus Christ has come to do. Let's pray. God, as we come once again to confess our brokenness to you, the one who knows it far deeper than we do, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see not only so that we can agree with you, but that we can see the remedy for it too. We can see in Jesus the, the rescue that we need, the one who went down so that we could be lifted up. We thank you for you, Jesus and for all that you've done for us. We pray that you would become alive to us more and more and more. We ask this in your name, mighty as it is. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can find us on the website peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find information about where and when we meet, as well as a catalogue of past sermons and other resources. Hope to see you soon.